Well, we are in the book of Philippians. If you're just joining us for the first time, and if you've been with us for any length of time, it is certainly my uh, urging of you that uh, one of the best ways you can prepare for the Lord's Day morning, those of you who are regulars here, is to do some pre-soaking in the text before you get here. Uh, and Philippians is one of those easier ones to do that. You can actually listen, if you want to listen to the book, you can listen to the entire four chapters of Philippians in 15 minutes. Uh, you can read it slowly in about 20 minutes or 30 minutes, all depending on, on how, how slow you want to go. And you can do it in a couple chunks. In other words, all of you probably have space to at least soak in Philippians prior to um, to the time. And, and there are some great benefits in that. Perhaps one of the most important things I want to say this morning, I'll say it right up front. We live in a world of speed, of noise, and of darkness. We live in a world of speed. We are traveling at a speed that God never intended our souls to travel at. The level of activity, the fragmentation, the isolation, uh, there's reasons why people are stressing out into all kinds of medical problems. Speed, noise. I don't think it's an exaggeration, at least it gets the point across, even if it is to some extent, that you and I probably digest more information in one week than our grandparents did in their whole lifetime. And most of it's not information, is it? Darkness. Not that long ago, less than a generation ago, liberal pe people that were liberal in their morality would not accept what today is the, is the norm. That's how quickly it's changed. And not only has it changed today, not only is stuff that wasn't acceptable to the most immoral of, of spectrums acceptable today, it's mandated today. Dare you speak against it? By the way, I am not just talking about sexuality. I'll give you another great example. The level of rebellion against institutions in our land. That has become so normal. Speed, noise, darkness. To which, when you soak in the word of God, you get something else. Instead of speed, stillness. This book is able to still a restless soul. Instead of noise, you get stability. Stability from the music of God's voice that breathes wisdom into us. Not information, wisdom. And instead of darkness, you get beauty. You get in Philippians, you, you get it in the form of joy, contented anticipation. Joy is that defiant nevertheless. Nevertheless, beauty is winning. Beauty will win. It will win out over darkness, which is why if you hear nothing else today, and even as we think in just a few weeks going into what the church calls the season of Lent as we prepare those 40 days toward Easter, what a, what a place we need to be to soak our souls in this word. 
and to counteract the darkness and the noise and the speed of life. I really should close in prayer right there and just make my point even stronger. But, you know, a preacher, he always has more to say than people can handle. Um, so let me pray and get going. Father, I have been so personally blessed and healed and invigorated and rescued by simply being in this one book for so long now. May you somehow enable me to convey some of that this morning in the sweet name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we were talking about uh, this, this sexuality class did pause. One of the reasons it paused is because downstairs they were talking about parenting and they wanted to keep on talking about parenting. And it just so happens this wasn't planned. We're in a place in Philippians today where there's some great information on parenting and how to navigate uh, family expectations. And here's what I think we should do before we go much farther because we're at the halfway point in Philippians after today. Uh, we should pause and see how far we've climbed so far in this hike through the book of Philippians and remind you of a little bit of, the, of what's going on. I know I've done that regularly enough, so this will be uh, repetitious, but um, the Philippians, this group, this little town called Philippi, this Roman colony to which this letter from the Apostle Paul, an apostle just means an authorized messenger of Jesus, he wrote this little teeny letter to this small uh, group of Christians, a, a group of Christians smaller than what's in this room. Uh, and uh, these Christians, by the way, are known, one of the things they're known for in another book of the Bible is their extreme poverty. They lived in extreme poverty, even though they were also known for extreme generosity. Uh, but that extreme poverty is making them anxious, as you can expect. Uh, could this new belief in Jesus Christ sustain them through extreme poverty? That was a legitimate question. On top of that, they're experiencing, like all Christians did in the first century, they're experiencing opposition, particularly from other Gentiles, other, uh, other people loyal to Rome. Because you see, Christians had the audacity of calling this criminal who was crucified uh, a lord. And the only term for lord, the only person that had that term was Caesar. So what they were essentially doing was uh, being unpatriotic in the worst possible way. Uh, they were defying Caesar uh, by calling Jesus Lord. Uh, so they were experiencing opposition from that. And all these factors, these, these uh, external factors of poverty and, and uh, external opposition, they were creating distrust among the people as well. And this poisonous spirit of uh, self-seeking was beginning to take over. There were even divisions in their leadership, which we'll look at more when we get to chapter 4. And as I went back over these two chapters and thought about these things, uh, as uh, I thought about a whole, a whole new application dawned on me. This was not, I was not even planning to go there uh, this particular Sunday, but as I was just uh, walking through chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, I found myself realizing that there is this, there is such rich application here for this idea. Well, that's an interesting uh, one that doesn't belong there. But um, uh, there's such rich application for this idea of a parent today. So I want to talk to everybody in this room who is a parent. And by the way, 
Those italics up there are more important than the letters in between, almost. Let me explain what I mean. Hopefully when there's done, every one of you are going to feel like a parent. I want to speak to anybody who cares deeply and carries some weight of either responsibility or opportunity for the well-being of another person. And by well-being, I mean the spiritual stability of another person. So in one sense, if you're part of the Christian family, you're a parent to everybody else. And in another sense, you're actually a child all the time too. That's what I want you to think of, this parent-child relationship that's going on here. And then I want you to imagine that you have this weight of responsibility or this connection, this opportunity to someone who you care about their spiritual stability. And I want you to imagine that you see them stumbling. You see them succumbing to the sort of gravitational pull of the things around them. By the way, you, you recognize that's so normal, so you're not freaked out by it, but you also recognize it is so serious. So what do you do about it? How do you approach that situation? Now I have you in the position of the Apostle Paul writing to his children, the Philippians. And here's some beautiful things. We're just going to do a quick flyover of some of these. The first thing uh, we see in this parent Paul is in chapter 1, verse 3 uh, through 7, he's affirming. The first thing out of his mouth in chapter 1, I thank my God and all, every time I think of you. Always in my, when I'm praying, I, when I pray, I pray with joy when I think of you. I think of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Paul expresses his pride in his children. He's grateful for them. I mean, he, they're having all these problems, but the first thing out of his mouth is affirmation. And boy, I tell you, I, I could, this is enough for me to just, I, I have enough application right now with my personality, with that one application in being a, an affirmer. Uh, before reacting, before reacting to someone in a situation, can I first reflect? Can I, can I first reflect before reacting to someone? Can I, before I see all the things that are wrong with them, can I first look for evidence of God's grace in them? And that's what Paul does here. That's enough, you know, just to live off of there. The second thing is he's relentlessly positive, yet realistically confident. Um, look at uh, later on in chapter 1, verse 19. I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's in prison. They're concerned about him. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. There's two things in those few verses. He's, he's positive. He's confident God's in the thick of this. Even though the, the imprisonment is a bad thing, he's confident God is in the midst of this. He's confident that he's listening to their prayers. He's expecting to be delivered from this situation, but he's also realistic. I know I'm going to be delivered. I'll either be killed or I'll get out. And either way, God's, you know, God's ruling in this. He's, he's got this beautiful combination of these two things, which is such a contrast today when people try to deny reality. It's so popular today uh, to believe in yourself or to believe in someone else other than God to fix a problem. Uh, I, 
I can hardly watch a show without a crisis moment coming when uh, you hear someone say, it's going to be all right. You know, I, I saw it the other day uh, watching the, um, the uh, old uh, movie Pearl Harbor and the guy saying to his, his uh, little, uh, you know, his, his girl that he loved, I, I will come back for you. I mean, people just say these things left and right all the time. You know, they, they say, I won't let anything happen to you. To which uh, I will refer you to an article that's posted out there. We try to put a new article in the, uh, in the box out there each month. This one's called, In the World Will you, you Will Have Trouble. Here's just one paragraph from it. It's futile for someone to say, cheer up or be encouraged when you are in the heart of difficult and tragic times. They mean well because they want us to feel better. The world's positive thinking and you got this idiom is not sufficient in the end. And listen to this one sentence. No one in their own power has that kind of authority to give us hope and assurance about anyone's circumstances. God be God, period. That's not what Paul's doing here. He's not just doing some kind of fake reality. He's the parent uh, who is persistently hopeful. He's, he's confident. Boy, I'm doing good up here today. He's, uh, he is confident primarily because it's rooted in what God's doing, not what he wishes God would do. Get that? There's a big difference. There's a big difference in being confident that God is doing something, which is different than having your confidence in, I want God to do something specific. You really got to hold that loosely. He's also, Paul's a confident parent, not because he, he's confident in what he can do. He's confident in what, Paul, what God can do. And so really, I think of Paul as a, in, in this area of being relentlessly positive and realistically confident. I think of him like a, um, a boxing coach in the corner. He's simultaneously shouting at them and cheering them at the same time. He's shouting at them, uh, verse 27 of chapter 1, strive together. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation. Work out what God began in you. By the way, that's the cheering. God began a good work in you, Paul cheering. Work it out with fear and trembling, Paul shouting. Uh, over and over this back and forth, chapter 2, verse 16, hold fast, persevere, him shouting in that corner. But he's also, at the same time that he's shouting for them to make progress, he's the trainer in the corner cheering them at the same time. Over and over, do you know what the phrase, the phrase that appears the most in these four chapters? You are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's having to remind them of that over and over and again. Basically, he's saying, get up! After you've been knocked down, God's got this. Not you. Get up. God's got this. You're going to win. And in the center of it all is Christ in chapter 2. Christ is the one before whom all of humanity will bow. That's what chapter 2 tells us. Christ is the one before whom all of humanity will bow. And what is he doing? He is humbling himself and bowing before all of humanity in sacrifice. So he's cheering them to Christ. He's pointing them to Christ. 
The other thing that I love about him is he's both gently intrusive and he's not rescuing them from necessary suffering. He's showing them how to see God for them in it. I, I think of them as kind of, maybe because I've watched Pearl Harbor, I think of them as like kamikazes just heading for the battleship and Paul yelling out at them, pull up, pull up, you know. They're just, they're going, they're, they're, they're just being forced down by, by, by the world. But his concern is expressed in this gentle, very careful, intrusive comments. He's not just sitting there folding his hands, afraid to offend them. He's intruding, but he's doing it with such gentleness and such grace and such persistence. He's not angry. He's not anxious. He's not manipulating them through that anger and anxiety. He's gently intrusive in their life. And as much as he doesn't like to see them suffering, if he knows anything, he knows this. There's no way around suffering. There is some absolute necessary suffering for every one of us in this life. At the end of chapter 1, it has been granted to you, verse 29, for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You cannot join this family without taking on suffering. It just comes with the territory. And yet he's trying to show them that it's not about getting out of suffering, it's about seeing how God is for them in their suffering. And then finally, uh, toward the end of chapter two, uh, you see this interesting combination here of the uncertainty of outcomes as a parent and the certainty of joyful sacrifice. These, these would be easy verses to miss in your reading through Philippians. Verse 16 of chapter 2, he tells them to persevere, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. And if he put a period there, everything would be fine. But then he says something which appears several times in the New Testament and throws us. It really confuses us that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul realizes that right now, it looks like these people are safely in Christ. It looks like they're genuine believers. It looks like I've got nothing to worry about. But boy, their world's being rocked. The hike has gotten steeper and, and they're stuttering, they're stalling. These are those moments when we find out are they in Christ or are they just around Christ? And Paul has absolutely no control over that. Every godly parent longs for their kids to follow Jesus. In fact, they long for their kids to follow Jesus better than they have, over which they have absolutely no control. Absolutely no control. Nor can they really know to some extent. They, they can't really know. They can, we can make great guesses on someone's salvation, but we can't know with absolute divine certainty. And one of the great dangers for a parent is living for outcomes. 
your whole life is built around the outcome of your kids. There's no easy way to say this. That is a golden calf that you must destroy or it will destroy you. Instead, there is something you can do. It's the next verse. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, I sure hope I'm not running in vain. I don't think I am. But you know what? At the end of the day, you know what I can do? I can pour my life out in sacrifice for you, for the joy of Jesus, which can't ever be taken from me. I have no guarantee that my sacrifice will do anything, but I will gladly pour it out for Christ. The uncertainty of outcomes and the certainty of joyful sacrifice. I will just add one more thing from other texts uh, and places in Scripture. You can expect... Because 1 Corinthians 15 comes to my mind right away. Verse 58, that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. You can expect that your imperfect, inconsistent faithfulness, striving for the spiritual stability of someone else, will count, will bear fruit, will make a difference in some way, and ultimately be accepted by God. So those are just some parenting insights from the ground we've already covered. And I hope, if nothing else, what you're seeing here is the blessing of soaking in God's word, of sort of read, rinse, and repeat. You know, that that idea of just going over these texts slowly and beginning to exchange the anger and anxiety we have over wanting to control our world with the peace of just yielding our lives up in sacrifice to God to do whatever he wants to do. So you've gotten two messages already. Let's see if we can squeeze the third one in in the next couple of minutes. Uh, There are two examples here. This is the text that Dinah read for us today, the examples of Timothy and Epaphras in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. Uh, Some commentators, people who, you know, work, work with the Bible here, they tend to say that what we have here are two examples of humility. He's given Christ as the ultimate example earlier in chapter 2, and now he's showing it in two other people, Timothy and Epaphras. And that's correct. But I actually think that's a secondary idea. There's something much more practical going on here in this section. So allow me to give you a little bit of context. Uh, I'm grateful to several Bible scholars that have helped here, particularly one guy named Moisha Silva has done the best job, I think, of putting all these pieces together. But here's what's happening. The Philippians are in need. Remember, we described their situation. The Philippians are in need of, of spiritual leadership. They really need someone with, with uh, wisdom and integrity like Paul to be there for them right now. They are, they are sheep without a shepherd. And so they send Epaphras, uh, Epaphras to, um, uh, to Paul, who's in prison, and uh, they send him with a gift to help Paul while he's in prison. And they send him to be an assistant to Paul so that Paul's assistant, Timothy, much more qualified, can come back in the place of Paul. It's a smart move on their part. However, Paul has a problem here. He can't send Timothy to them. He has to send back the same person they sent, Epaphras. They, they, 
and here's what Paul has to do. This is where he has to be gentle and intrusive and delicate. Paul has this challenge. How can he cushion their inevitable disappointment without crushing Epaphroditus when he comes back? Um, so that's part of the, the dilemma that's going on here in uh, talking about Timothy in the first part and talking about Epaphroditus in the second part. So the first thing I want you to see in verse 19 is he says, I do want to send Timothy to you. I really do want to send Timothy to you. Right out of the box, I want to tell you that. Uh, so he's making a pledge to them that he, their, their request is very reasonable. But I want you to notice something that is missing usually when we make pledges and commitments. It's the first five words in verse 19, or better yet, three words. I hope in the Lord. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon. In other words, Paul is committed to this, but he, real, he realizes that he doesn't have control over all the things in life. We have to say in the Lord. We don't really know sometimes. Uh, and in this case, think about this. Am I expecting others? Am I expecting others in my life to do what I think they should but may not be able to do because of circumstances I haven't even considered or that they can't control? Just think about that for a moment. Am I expecting others to do what I think they should do, but they may not be able to because of circumstances I'm not aware of and things they can't control? And that's exactly the situation here with Paul. That's why one of the first things I would say is we need to develop the habit of vertically previewing your wants and expectations with the Lord before you horizontally express them to others. We usually do it backwards. It usually creates conflict, and then we have to come back, and we have to undo all of that stuff. What would it be like to do this on a regular habit? What would it be like before I get angry and upset and demanding, especially if someone doesn't give me what I want, which I think is a right thing, have I really previewed this with the Lord? Maybe there's something I can't see. Maybe I'm not as omniscient as I think I am. And so in verses 20 through 22, he tells them, look, let me tell you something about Timothy, something you probably already know and why you want him. He's been proven, verses 20 through 22. He's, he's, he's a proven gospel partner. I like the old school term, he's seaworthy. He is seaworthy. He has proven himself on the rough seas over and over again. He is a vessel in which I can place myself and have high expectation. That's what Timothy is. That's the co-author of this letter, by the way. And just to cheer you up, this seaworthy Timothy, several years later, Paul has to write to him, to this seaworthy, solid guy named Timothy, and says, Timothy... God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Timothy is just feeling the heat. He's got a leak in his ship. So just because you're seaworthy doesn't mean you're not vulnerable. That's the whole story of Timothy. And then 23 and 24, Paul basically says, look, I want to send him. Uh, however, uh, I need him. I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come. Uh, but he says, Timothy's proven worth. He's like a father to me, served with me in the gospel. 
And if you notice in verse 20, he's, or in verse 21, all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul had other companions with him, and they abandoned him, and only Timothy is left. And basically, he says to them, listen, Philippians, I'm going to send Timothy to you, but you need to understand something. I need him now more than you do, more than you do. Others have caved, and only Timothy is left behind, which then leads me to this other thought that keeps coming up over and over in this section. Every one of us needs one of us. It's called discipleship. Every one of us needs one of us. Think about it for just a minute. Despite being in prison where Paul could find joy, we saw that already. Despite being in prison where he, he was able to find the joy of Christ, guess what? He was still a needy person. He still had great need. And it wasn't selfishness to keep Timothy. He was committed to sharing him. It was wisdom because Timothy was essential support that only Timothy could supply. And it just reinforces this idea that every one of us needs one of us. A David needs a Jonathan. A Naomi needs a Ruth. And on and on the Bible continues to demonstrate over and over again. In fact, discipleship is not, I'm the superior guy investing myself in someone who's spiritually inferior. That's a very, I don't mean to offend you guys when I say this, but that's a very capitalistic way of looking at leadership. In 2 Timothy, what do we see? 2 Timothy, the very last letter Paul ever wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 1, uh, Timothy needs Paul to basically uh, kick him in the butt and light a fire underneath him and get him you know, back, in the, back in the mission. Guess what happens by chapter 4? Send Timothy to me. I need him. Paul desperately needs Timothy. Timothy desperately needs Paul. Discipleship. Discipleship. So that's why I love the fact that our recent uh, uh, elder retreat, we talked about how can we continue to provide support not only for family ministry that Abe talked about the Sunday after our elder retreat, but how can we provide support for men's ministries that have recently started up, for women's ministries, uh, for our small groups? How can we help these ministries continue to move from friendship to discipleship? Because those are not the same thing. How can we help them do that? How can we help them be places where we're talking about each other's progress in Christ like Philippians does? Our striving together for the gospel, our humbling ourselves, our suffering, our being fellow workers and fellow soldiers. So that's one of the things that uh, I'm excited about as we think about implementing some of those ideas. And then he's, he's, uh, he's made it clear in this first part, I'm going to send Timothy to you, but I'm going to send back Epaphroditus. And here's where uh, another great lesson comes home. Beware of being so focused on what we must have that we don't realize what we do have. It's almost like Paul has to say, I'm not sending back the second best. Do you have any idea? who you have in your midst with Epaphroditus? I mean, look at him. Behold Epaphroditus, 25 through 30. I mean, what a commendation here. He says in verse 25, it was necessary to send him to you. In other words, you have legitimate needs and Epaphroditus can help with that. 
and I commend him to you. He is a brother. He is a, a worker. He is a soldier. <laughs> is he devoted to Christ and to you? Well, look at the, look at the comments here. Verse 26, he's longing for you. Uh, he nearly died for the work of Christ. And then, get this, verse 26. I mean, do you slow down and read that and think, wow, just hold on a second. I'm, I'm going to put it in different language for you. He uses the word in here, distress, which, by the way, is the same word used of Jesus in the garden when he sweat drops of blood. Epaphroditus is distressed over hearing of their distress at his distress. <laughs> I mean, he has a heart that's as large as the Grand Canyon for these Philippians. Beware of being so focused on what we think we must have that we don't realize what we already do have. Behold your seaworthy servant, Epaphroditus. These are ways that we navigate our family expectations with the humility displayed by Timothy who stuck around and by Epaphroditus who was willing to die for these people who probably thought less of him. <laughs> I have another thought here I want to close with, but I want to first invite the um, people serving communion, the worship team back up. As always, I'd just like to make it clear that this table is open for anybody who's a believer as we come to take a bread and cup. We'll come up the center aisle. We'll all take, we'll all get bread and cup together, and then I'll, I'll lead us in taking it in just a few moments. But this is a, this is a table here for everyone who has bowed their knee to Jesus. Everyone who realizes they're guilty of rebellion against him. Everyone who realizes they owe a debt that they can't pay, but are depending upon Jesus to pay that debt for, for them. That's who this table is for. So welcome to this table. Nourish your souls on the body and blood of Christ. Nourish your soul on his payment uh, for your, uh, your sins. But here's what I want you to think of this morning in light of this message. Uh, we changed communion here several years back where we used to distribute it to people in the seats. And we decided instead to make it much more pronounced so people come up, they get bread and cup together. Uh, we wanted to see the robustness of the gospel displayed in communion. One of the things I've heard repeatedly from people when we change that is it's sweet to be there and see your whole family walk up together. So today, as, as you watch people walk up, these are your brothers and sisters. You're part of a parent to these children. They're a child to you as a parent and vice versa. These are the people that you're responsible for, that you carry uh, a weight for. And so as you come, I would say three things you can think of pledging yourself to. And it's okay if you don't remember these things. You can just, whatever the, the Holy Spirit wants you to remember. You could come up and say, for Jesus, and depending on the Spirit, you could pledge yourself to navigate our family expectations with humility, which means asking the Lord to help you in situations where there's tension and misunderstanding and conflict. Help me get in the skin of the other person before I begin drawing conclusions about them.
Help me get in their skin and see the world from their perspective. You can pledge yourself, depending on the spirit, to be persistently hopeful, confidently realistic, gently intrusive, and helping each other see God for us in the necessary suffering he's called us to. And finally, you can pledge yourself, depending on the spirit, to holding your outcomes for one another loosely while joyfully pouring out your sacrifice to one another for Christ. Those are just simple ways, I think, that we can process this today. So let's take a moment, ask the Lord, what does he want you to think about? Why, why did he bring you here this morning? And then I'll pray for us. By the very fact that we call you Father, you remind us of the profound importance of family. Someday the family that we ache to be and we ache for will be ours forever and ever and ever. I wonder sometimes, Lord, if we're only experiencing 1% of the thrilling joy of that in these imperfect families we have now. All that's possible because of the broken body and spilled blood of your son. Help us take him in now and become even more, even closer to that family you're creating. In Jesus' name, amen.